I got an X. Okay. I think. Good afternoon. Uh, and welcome to class in the bunker. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be able to be able to be doing these on a Sunday afternoon. It seemed like a, a nice time to be able to reflect and, and look at these things. Um, now, before we get started, I do have a bit of a uh, request. And that is, uh, believe it or not, when we from the last couple of classes that we've been able to do, um, last, last week we had over 400 views. We have a class of about 400 people uh, and and we're all over the place and we're all coming here together for about an hour uh, some of you will view this later but 400 is a pretty good class my own my own uh, curiosity is I'm wondering uh, where everybody is and where everybody is from so I'm going to ask a favor and that is that if you get a chance would you please um, just kind of drop a, a, a comment about where you're watching this from so we can get an idea of maybe the reach we, and it might be kind of fun for us to be able to see just how extensive uh, our, our little class is, is growing. So, But uh, welcome to everybody who's, who's here. Now, as, as, we're, as we're trying to get going here, uh, what we want to be able to do is we've been talking, for those of you who are maybe kind of newer to this class, uh, this semester uh, before the, the virus hit, we were working on understanding Paul um, and being able to uh, understand where he came from, what it is that he's teaching. We've been doing the journeys of Paul. Well, now we're at that point with Paul where he's, he's kind of reaching the climax, the apex of his entire uh, 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 ministry, if you will. Now, in order to understand what happens now when we start interacting with Rome, um, I, I want to start with this quote from C.S. Lewis, and that is um, one of my uh, favorite quotes here. He says, uh, the prayer preceding all other prayers is... May it be the real me, the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou I speak to. What he's basically saying is when I pray, can I be as honest with God as I need to be? But more importantly, the question is, who do I believe I'm talking to? Who, how do I picture God? How, what is his nature like? Uh, and because we have this tendency, this very human tendency to try and put on God all of our, uh, the thing, our ideals and the things that we wish God would do or not do. And we take all of those ideals and we place that on heaven. And God either meets that expectation or he doesn't. Uh, there are a lot of even prominent biblical scholars uh, that, that would say, uh, I can't believe in a God who blank, and because blank happened, suffering, heartache, wars, viruses, then I, it, it doesn't match my ideal of what I think God should be. And, and so our, how we see God and the nature of God becomes really important. And I have to tell you, when we would take a look at in a second what Paul was running into and how they pictured God, uh, that becomes very germane to what it is that he's writing. Um, 
But before we get off of this, let, let me give you a quick idea. Um, one of the things that I've found is that uh, how often do you think people change and create a God in their own image? How do you picture God? Well, here's what I want God to be. So I'm going to put God in my own image. Um, so, again, I like a God who will, and then fill in the blank. Let me give you an example of that. We might say, you know what? I, I prefer a heaven, and if I, if I tend to be a uh, spiritual person, which these days those are categorized as nuns, not N-U-N, nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns, meaning I don't believe in religion, but I'm a spiritual person. And, what, and that is usually then uh, preceded by... And the reason that I don't, I don't believe in religions because they categorize people or they're hypocritical or... And then the next line is usually, and I can get closer to God on a hiking in the mountains or fishing or walking in nature or whatever. In other words, but I'm a spiritual person. I believe in, in, a, in something, a higher power, some kind of deity but not one that is going to prescribe to me what I need to do. I'm just going to be able to get in touch and love and care about people, so I don't need a religion to do that. A religion is, my spirituality is not trapped by a building. I can go and do and be spiritual as much as I want to, okay? Now, give you another idea. Let's say that uh, we, get, we have kind of a political polarization going on, uh, obviously, and if someone tends to be kind of politically progressive, they're going to be more interested in a God that, is, that is, uh, loves diversity and does an outreach and is less about rules and more about love and more about inclusion and not about anything that would exclude anybody. Uh, they, they want a God that's going to be very much like that. At the other end of the spectrum are the political conservative who say, yeah, mercy is good, but there needs to be justice. You know, I, I, I get that we need to love, but there needs to be rules. There has to be consequences for your behavior. Uh, I want a God, I want a heaven where there are consequences. Uh, you take that all the way to the extreme, and that's, the, as we have joked before in, in this class in, in weeks past, uh, we get uh, dear St. Augustine. Uh, who took that all the way to the end to say, I believe that what makes heaven wonderful is being able to look into hell and see people suffer. <laughs> uh, you know, there, they got theirs. There was justice because they got theirs. Okay, I want a God that is going to administer justice with a sword. Okay, now let's say though that, you you, that you're a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> it could be as simple as, I, got, I love a God that doesn't want people to argue. <laughs> I get tired of contention. And I, and I like a God who's going to teach us to, can we get along and stop snipping at each other and, and just wants us to be loving and caring. Um, now, that, that maybe contrasts a little bit with what I call the spreadsheeter. Uh, and you, you CPAs and attorneys and computer guys and, and out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, I want a God that's going to give us a consistent plan about what he has in mind. And it lays out very neatly and cleanly. <clears throat> and, it, and everything works. Uh, I like that God a lot. Um, in the church, 
the, uh, we tend to be the one that says, I like the prayer plan. How do you get an answer to prayer? Well, DNC 9 says, I'm supposed to work it out in my mind. And if it's wrong, then I'll have a stupor. And if it's right, I'll have a burning. I like that plan. It's easy. I don't have to think. I can put that on there. I can plug whatever dilemma I have into that plan. And it works. And it works until it doesn't work. And you go, well, then how come something's wrong? And, that, and we will probably get into that a little bit more next week when we go into uh, the heart of what uh, Paul taught in Romans, particularly in Romans 8 and 9. Uh, how about if you tend to love research? You love to be able to dig. Perhaps you want a God that is kind of mysterious, and he's, you, can't, you can't put it all very simply. You have to dig, and you've got to look, and, and it's always unfolding, and it's the God of mysteries. This was uh, at the time of, uh, after the time of Paul, in, in the early couple of centuries, these were the Gnostics. And it's like Gnostics meaning mysteries. God is somehow there, but we don't have all the information about who he is. And, and we like this God. We've got to search for him. We've got to look for him because we don't really know exactly what he's doing. Uh, but he, there's something, and we've got to figure it out. Okay? So, again, I think we have a tendency to then make God into the image of what we're looking for. Now, when we start taking a look then at the world in which Paul was operating, he's going to start running into people that already have a preconception of God. In fact, um, remember that when, when Paul started on the Damascus Road, he had, a, he had one view of who God was, what God wanted, what God expected. Uh, by the time he got to the other end of the Damascus Road, and now he couldn't see after the vision, his whole view of the nature of God had changed dramatically. God was not who he thought, and it was going to take him time to figure out who exactly God is then, and what exactly does he want me to do. Uh, and it's actually going to take him decades. Again, when we get to Romans, we have reached his graduate thesis. This is, this is his apex. And you're going to see the accumulation of everything that Paul has learned over time, by the time we get there. But when he's out in his missionary work, uh, he's going to run into uh, certainly different philosophies of the nature of God. For instance, uh, the Jews who are in bondage to the Romans and would really like to be done being in bondage to the uh, Romans, not just because uh, they didn't like what the Romans were doing, because very often the Romans were kind of hands off and let you kind of do whatever you want to do and run your synagogues. But the fact that the Romans were there with the fact that they were the covenant people and God had not yet revealed himself to them and cast off all their enemies. In other words, as long as the Romans were there, as long as they were surrounded by pagans, the, the fulfillment of the coming Messiah had not yet returned. And they knew that partly because, because the Shekinah, the, the light and the power of God was not descending on the temple of Herod the way that it had on the temple of Solomon. So they knew God wasn't yet here. It's still coming. And we like a God who would show up. We like the God of hosts. We like the God of Hezekiah, who's going to wipe out a whole army. 
uh, we like that guy and we're waiting for that guy and that guy isn't here yet we're not quite sure why maybe it's because you know we haven't quite thrown off the Romans yet um, so that's you know that's for some of the zealots it's then foment the rebellion against Rome to try and get that God to come if we start a battle God will finish it uh, the Essenes sitting at the Dead Sea Scroll side in Qumran were waiting about just as the Romans were still coming that God's coming, he's coming, he's coming and right up to the moment that he wasn't coming and they were wiped out that, so the Jews were really picturing that Messiah and we'll talk about him in a second because he was to be the successor to King David um and like I say, we'll get into that in a big way in just a second. Okay, The Greeks, on the other hand, were steeped in philosophy. And they liked a God who worked the way they thought he would. And so, for instance, as we found with Paul um, on the Areopolis, on Mars Hill, where he's got two separate groups, uh, main groups of philosophers. And the Epicureans, for instance, they loved a God who did his work and went away. They loved a God who came, did his thing, then he sits up here. He just wants us to be happy. Uh, so our job is to enjoy life. L'chaim, <laughs> Jews would say, live life, you know, have great wine, you know, mess around. Uh, and God is just going to kind of sit up here and he, he's really distant. Uh, on the other hand, the Stoics, the Greeks, they're like, they were like the Gnostics. They want a God that is... In philosophy, you've got to talk and debate, and it's not about emotional, it's about understanding and digging in and trying to really get into what it is that God does and then having endless debates about that. So they, they love that philosophical God. That's the guy that they liked. Um, uh, now, at the same time then, we also have, and, and th this becomes really critical to what Paul is going to be talking about and that is the gods the Romans uh, worshipped they had gathered all of the the Greek gods sometimes changed the name uh, brought them in there but they had now added another god that was going to substantially change everything in terms of Paul and the church in in Rome and that was the Romans that constantly lived in the shadow of the imperial cult, the imperial Caesar cult that guided so much of what they did and how they would respond uh, to Paul. So, and, and this God ruled with a sword. This God created peace by power. This God would put down any enemies. This God was, was quick to make sure that uh, things stayed in peace but this God ruled with an iron fist and a bloody sword. They liked that God, and they worshipped that God. That was that was their God. So, kind of put that, put kind of pin that up for just a second. So, so then let's talk about. Um, so we get this fledgling church then that begins in Rome. Now, uh, as we've talked about in other classes. Often, especially in the in uh, Jewish areas, the church was really at first known as the Way. Uh, Romans kind of adopted the idea of the Christ worshippers or the Christians, uh, but oftentimes it was just the Way. 
and they were invited to join in the way. Uh, Jesus would say, come follow me, and they would follow in the way. Um, now, so where, did the, where does the church get its, um, its early start from? Um, well, we think, and, and tradition suggests, that the church in Rome may have begun as early as, as soon as the, uh, the visitors who had come, who were Jewish, living in Rome, had traveled to Jerusalem about 28, 29 AD, whenever this was, and they had heard about this Jewish preacher who had been crucified at Passover. And, and that was kind of interesting. And the rumor was out that he was no longer dead, which was kind of weird. Um, but these Jewish pilgrims from Rome would have been there at Pentecost. And here is some, one of this Jesus' followers, Peter, who then has a marvelous Pentecostal experience and, and the tongues of fire and, and that some of the early converts would have been part of watching all of that and been amazed by all of that and perhaps stayed long enough you know where Peter's saying what have you against being baptized and they're going to be baptized and they may have gone from Rome for Passover and Pentecost and come back followers of the way but still Jewish the other possibility too is that there were missionaries shortly after as Peter and the apostles started to go out and, and very firmly the most of the um, the uh, Christian uh, traditions suggest that Peter came to Rome early and started to preach and started to establish house churches. Um, and, and so they would have, they would have been um, established in a way uh, that they were small, but they were growing and they were trying to develop. Now, um, let me just, but there, but there was a problem here. And, and when we talk about how we worship God, this becomes kind of important here. Um, I want you to picture something for just a second. Let's say that, um, that uh, a group of LDS missionaries uh, go to Japan and they're, and they're, they're primarily first pre preaching to Buddhists who had no Christian tradition at all. Then what happens is that uh, as, as the church starts to grow and there are some wards and branches that, that sudden, suddenly all of the American influence is pulled out of Japan and these fledgling churches are left only with these former Buddhists who still have Buddhist culture and Buddhist belief, but it's kind of mixing a bit with the, with, uh, the church that they're learning. And then there's a period of time, so then it becomes kind of half Buddhist, half Christian. And then at some point, American influence comes back in and says, wow, what, what's been going on while we were gone? Okay, because left to their own devices, they're still by tradition they're worshiping who they used to worship. They like these guys. Okay, it's exactly what happened in Rome. There were preachers of the way who were coming along, and they were preaching and setting up churches to former pagans. 
and these pagans are learning and they're growing and they're having to put off traditions and and they're starting to catch on okay and then about the early 50s emperor claudius is going to there's going to be a plague <laughs> there's a virus and people are dying in rome and he does what a lot of times they would do back then they need a scapegoat it was the jews so they're going to kick all of the jews out of rome some of them like aquila and priscilla will end up in corinth where they'll meet paul but the jewish influence and the jewish roots to the way are going to be separated out and what that left was the roman influence and how they saw gods and how they saw some pagan views of things and so what's going to happen even when the jews finally come back when claudius dies and they're able to reintegrate and aquila and priscilla are able to come back uh, and paul's getting ready to come by then these the 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 branches these house churches in rome would have been more leaning towards paganism they like they like those kind of things they still like going to maybe the temples and they because the roman temples the they have the best barbecue by far you know they're going to worship the meat to the gods and then they're going to sell it afterwards and it's the good stuff okay so so yeah they're going to they're going to have that heavy leaning towards roman belief and there's a and one special one that we're talking about in a sec okay so we think that sometime um, in the uh, in the early 50s then Paul is going to be preaching in Corinth he's going to meet Aquila and Priscilla he's not on the run he's, he's very settled in Corinth for which he was for years and he, but he, his intent just before his third journey is that he really wants to get to Rome. Paul has had this annoying habit of not necessarily just picking off little towns and trying to grow the church there. He wants the population centers. He's not messing around in the small ones. He's going to hit Philippi and he's going to hit uh, Antioch and he's going to hit Ephesus and he's going to hit Corinth. And it would make perfect sense that his next goal is to get to Rome. Because there's something that needs to be proclaimed here. So, when we take a look at the letter he will then carefully craft to, to the Romans, it is unlike any of the others. In Galatians or 2 Corinthians, he, there's a problem and he's trying to deal with it. Or he's writing it on the run. Or he's writing it when he's upset. Um, and, and there will be quick communications and he's trying to solve problems that exist in these churches that he's set up. Romans is different. This is his thesis. What, do, after all these years of preaching, this is late, late in his preaching, what does he believe? He's going to write to a sophisticated audience and he's going to make sure that they understand this gospel deeply. So we need to understand that when we take a look at at uh, the letter to the Romans. It was indeed written uh, in the late 50s. It was well written and it was well developed and it's a theologically deep discussion. It is deep and it is full and it is powerful. Um, 
And it appears, and we're going to talk more about this next week. Um, there's so much here. Um, the, the letter appears to clarify, and it's going to delve into what it means to be righteous. And he's going to use the term being righteous. If we're going to lift that up and drop it into today's world, uh, what, this mean, what does it mean to be saved? How does salvation come? The righteous are going to be saved in some way. And, and he's going to define exactly what that means. Um, now, and then he's going to write it. He will, it'll take time to complete it. He will actually put it together. He will send it off, and he's going to send it with Phoebe. Phoebe is a deaconess in the church, and she's going to take and deliver it from Corinth to Rome. And we think that she probably even delivered it, probably, and read it out loud uh, to people. So we're grateful to Phoebe. Okay, now. So let, let's, let's stop for a second. Um, those of us who are... Uh, you know, in, in in our LDS tradition, in our LDS cultural experience, we love the gospel. But the but the Pauline epistles are tough, and there's nothing tougher than Romans, and yet it's where the meat is. It's the heart of the heart of the heart. Okay, and 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 so what that means is that. If we're going to go to get the gospel, according to Paul, we've got to go to Romans. Now, we've had two big, traditionally, there have been two big problems in trying to extract, uh, as, as LDS uh, people, the meat out of Romans. First one is, is the King James Version. We love the King James Version. It's our official version of the, of the church. It was Joseph Smith's Bible. But one of the things that we've been doing in this class over the last uh, couple of semesters is that we've been, we understand, we read the King James Version, but we're looking very carefully at, at newer translations of the Bible that, are, that aren't being drawn like pull out all of the gender uh, things or they're not, they're not kind of uh, silly translations. These are being drawn directly from the Greek and they're LDS sources often. Um, and, and that becomes critical because if we're going to try and read the power that is Romans and we're going to try and read it in the King James Version, you're going to get lost really fast. And you're going to go swimming in this thing and you're going to go, I don't get it at all. Because the King James Version, uh, written, written in, drawn from the Greek translations but written in Old Middle English, is almost unreadable. So uh, I want to give you an example of, of that, one that I have I've used before, but because a lot of you are, are uh, newer to this, I want to give you just one example of what uh, the difference it makes to read, to be able to understand this in a different version. Okay, if we look at, um, uh, I'm going to take just just uh, one. One, one couple of verses from, from Romans. So here's Romans 7.15. And he says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would that I do, I not. But what I hate, that do I. For the good that I would, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. 
try and roll that verse out in sacrament meeting. Next time you're giving a talk, why don't you quote that one and then explain exactly what that means? Uh, because it's wonderful what Paul is saying, but but we don't have a clue because we're because we're not living in King James Court, and it didn't make much sense, by the way, back then as well. So when someone like uh, Tom Wayman comes along and he's going to provide an LDS translation drawn from the original Greek and put it in the language of that Greek and translate it in a way that we would understand and be accurate, look at how suddenly this changes. Because here's Wayman's version of this. For I do not understand, Paul says, my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the thing I hate to do. I have this natural man that keeps doing dumb things. I do the things that I hate, that I, that I did, but I did them anyway. Then he goes on to say, For I can desire to do what is right, but I'm not able to do it. For I do not do the good I desire to do, but the evil I do not want, that is what I do. When I ran this by my grandson, and he looked at that and he said, oh, I can understand that one. <laughs> that one makes sense. The other one, I have no idea. Okay? If we're able to understand the power of, of Romans, we first of all have to read it in a language that we will understand. I do not understand my own actions. That I, I think we can clearly understand. Uh, there are also other versions like the ESV and the NRSV. Uh, great, great translations of this. Uh, I wouldn't recommend the King James Version in the reading of Romans. I just think it's too tough. Now, once you have read in the other versions, you may be able to unlock it. But you need to be able to read it. And why would you need to do that? Because, brothers and sisters, the entire rest of the Christian world is not using the King James Version. <laughs> if we would converse with them, we've got to be able to be conversant with like the NRSV and be able to and, and find the things that they're referring to. Because when we start quoting the King James Version to them, they're going to go, hmm, that, no, doesn't make any sense to me. Okay? And we're kind of locked in on that. So that would be the first thing I would suggest is that I, I think if to look at the power of Romans uh, and, and the quotes that I'm going to use today and next week are all drawn from the Wayman uh, version, uh, BYU professor, an LDS uh, version of this, uh, and they are powerful and they are clear. Uh, and then and it will actually help us unlock the King James version if we want to then go back and, and, and read that as well. Okay, so but that's roadblock number one. Why we have a hard time with Romans. Here's the second one. So here here's the challenge. Let's say that um, one of you has a has a, a kid that gets called on a mission, and you're going to say to him, "Okay, uh, congratulations, you have just been called." to, uh, I don't know, an island in the Pacific that's never heard of Christianity. The people that are there, they're natives. They've never heard about Christianity. They don't know about Christ. Um, 
and you're going to have to go preach Christ to them. But, Elder, the only thing that you can take with you is the Old Testament. All you can take is the Old Testament. You don't get to use the Book of Mormon. You don't get to use the New Testament. The only thing you will have to preach the gospel to these people and have them believe in Jesus is the Old Testament. That's it. So, two problems. <laughs> One, that is exactly what Paul was doing because the other go the Gospels hadn't been written yet. He was having to draw on his knowledge of the Old Testament. So Paul, everything Paul was doing was Old Testament based. And number two, we stink at the Old Testament. <laughs> we, we're really bad at that. We're, we got great stories in the Old Testament, but outside of that, the Old Testament gives us the willies. So we don't, A, we don't know the Old Testament. <laughs> um, and B, we, so we don't know exactly where to find Christ in the Old Testament. But that's exactly what Paul was doing. And in fact, there's a pretty good chance that as uh, first Mark and then Matthew and Luke, when they were looking for writings about uh, and trying to describe what the Savior had done during his ministry, any writings by Paul might have been available to them. It's possible. But, the, but they were certainly written at least a decade before any of the Gospels were. Maybe, maybe longer. Okay? So that's the roadblock number two, is that if we're going to understand this, we've got to understand that Paul is proving to the Romans that Jesus is who he said he was, but he's doing the Old Testament to do it. And yes, that does mean Isaiah. <laughs> and yes, that does mean the Psalms. And that means Daniel. And that means Jeremiah. And, and then walking through Genesis that has weirdness in it. And there it is. That's what he's got. Okay. So, here's Paul. And he's about to write... It sounds like we're setting things up here a lot, aren't we? Uh, yes, we are. <laughs> Today is a lot of history and setup, and then we'll next week we're going to kind of get into the meat of it. But um, so there's one more little piece that we need to put in play. We're just kind of arranging things on the table, and we're putting all this together. Okay, here's the next one. I want to talk for just a second about um, the imperial cult. Uh, we started to talk about this a little bit, and this is going to have such a major impact on what Paul writes and what he's dealing with. Real quickly, the, the, sh the, the uh, short explanation of this without going into a long, you know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, we remember real quickly that Rome begins as a, uh, as, as a republic and is trying to copy after... Um, after the things done in Athens, the, re the Republic of, of uh, Athens and, and uh, Greece, they're going to form a republic and they're going to have a, and it's going to be ruled over with, by the Senate and then a threesome that operates for a term in terms of leading uh, the government. Remember that there's a point at which Julius Caesar rises up and as he's conquering the other countries and bringing them to peace, that a rivalry begins with Pompeii. 
uh, that's going to lead to a civil war with Pompey as Caesar is trying to then kind of seize control of the Roman Empire and it leads to a bloody civil war. You, you remember that he defeats Pompey and then remember as he's getting ready in the Senate uh, in the forum to be able to be made emperor. You remember that on the Ides of March, Brutus and the, the other senators rise up and they're going to stab him and they're going to kill him. And that's going to mean that uh, Octavius has to then track down Brutus and those guys that did it. And there's another civil war. And, but, the, but the bottom line ends up being that, um, that, when, that under Caesar, they're going to start telling the story as he dies in memorial that he's the one that was that brought peace to the world he did it by the sword but Caesar um, did these things he's made our world better made everybody else's world worse but he did better he was actually killed by traitors like Brutus and because he did such great things they uh, Octavian declares him a god so they give him deified status and once if you're a god in that system that means that uh, you're going to have shrines built to you they're going to sacrifice to you and they're going to count on your help on the other side from wherever to help you with your crops and help you with fertility and you're going to stand right, right alongside Zeus and Artemis and the rest and that's where they put Julius Caesar, but this was a, even a more, much more popular <laughs> god than almost all the others. This was Julius Caesar, okay, and that would mean so. Now we have this god Julius Caesar and his son. So uh, uh, August, Augustus uh, Caesar was going to then be the son of God. Well, that's nice. Uh, so we have the God, the Son of God, and any time that you're going to talk about the story of Julius Caesar, what you're telling is the gospel. In Greek, it means the gospel, the good news. What was the good news to the Romans? The life and death and power of Julius Caesar. That was, And that imperial cult meant that it didn't if you were in Corinth, if you were in Ephesus, if you were in Philippi, what you're gonna see prominently is the Julius Imperial cult shrines. And that ruled that entire empire. That's the world that Paul is writing to. That's the world that they're gonna go talk to. That's the world that these branches of the church are going to be swimming in. Is this surrounded by the imperial cult? Now, if you can understand that part, then what what Paul is going to do then is he's going to do something quite remarkable, and it will frame what he writes. Now, in a in in scholarly circles, the idea of an an author that frames means I'm going to put. I'm going to put a frame on something. There's going to be a beginning and there's going to be an end. And these two relate and then there's going to be a middle. It's like an Oreo cookie. <laughs> you know, you got this cookie and this cookie and the, and the filling, okay? One of the most 
the, the most powerful framing things that you might see is the poem of Job. Job, Job is framed. You'll notice that the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters are really very similar, and what's in the middle is different. That's a framing. And this is the those, it's this framing that holds it together. What we're doing today is we're talking about Paul's framing. Next week we'll talk about the middle of the Oreo cookie, <laughs> the good stuff. Chapters 7 and 8 and 9, you know, that just is righteous, what is righteous. Um, but he's going to frame it. But he's going to frame it in a really powerful, potentially problematic way uh, because he's Paul. And he's going to preach and say what needs to be said regardless of who's listening. So here's what he says. And you just have to, it's kind of the, the uh, Yiddish term, the chutzpah. You know, the chutzpah of, of Paul to write what he's about to write here. Okay, so here's the framing. And it comes, and it's going to be in Romans 1 and Romans 15. Here's, here's the framing. Paul says in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, appointed to the gospel, the good news, of God. Oh, which God would that be? Because <laughs> that Julius Caesar? No, I'm the apostle, and I'm going to tell you the good news of God. Ah, what is that? Well, he, which he announced beforehand through the prophets, through the Old Testament, in his holy scriptures, the scriptures bear witness to uh, his who he is, and that he was going to be that he was coming, that he would do what he said he was going to do. What was it he said he was going to do regarding his son, who would come as a descendant of David according to the flesh? Okay, hold hold the hold the presses for just a second. When we go back and we look at what, the, what God the Jews were looking for, the God the Jews were looking for was going to be the anointed one, the Messiah. He would be, a, he would be a, a descendant of David. He would come with a sword in his hand and he would conquer the nations. And when that, when that descendant of King David came righteousness would come the people would be blessed and everybody else would be put down and what Paul begins within the first few verses of the book of Romans he's going to say regarding Jesus who would come as a descendant of David according to the flesh In other words, what he's doing is he's declaring uh, Kyrios Christos, which is King Jesus. He is the new King David. This is King Jesus. A descendant of David in, according to the flesh, who was appointed the Son of God. Oh, he thought that was Augustus. <laughs> he was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. Now, let's stop for a second here. Julius Caesar, the imperial cult, 
This is this great man. He brings peace, prosperity, and everything. But ultimately, he's killed. He's betrayed by traitors. Sound familiar? He's killed. But his body's still in the tomb. Now, when we look at who signed Jesus' death warrant, <laughs> Jesus' death warrant, even though it was the Jews that fomented it, stirred it up, it was actually going to be signed by Pontius Pilate, who was acting on behalf of Rome, who would be protected over by Julius Caesar. In other words, there is a sense here of under the power and the watchful eye of Caesar, we're going to put this man Jesus to death and hang him on a tree and he will be crucified. We put him to death. And then what happens three days later? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Where Caesar is still dead, Jesus is alive. And the revolution has begun. When King David has come, he will come to claim his throne. And he will come to claim his people. King Jesus has come. The kingdom has arrived. Think about what Jesus would say in his ministry. He's going to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of the misunderstanding that would happen in the Middle Ages as they looked at Romans was that they would miss the fact that it was all built on the fact that we're going to be righteous here and keep the commandments and go to heaven. The, the goal here, this earth is kind of a, a bad place to be but ultimately we'll go to heaven and life will be better there. Thy kingdom there. My mansion's there. What Paul declared and what these people believed was that the kingdom had come. Kyrios Christos, King Jesus was here. The revolution had begun. But instead of this conquering by the sword and by blood this conquering would be one heart at a time one family at a time one house church at a time this that these people would be claimed for Christ and that this revolution is going to slowly roll out not by violence not by anarchy, not by the sword. The revolution had begun, and it was beginning in people's hearts, not on the battlefield. That's a tremendous difference, and that's what Romans is going to say. Is that the revolution had begun. And we have a king. And he wins. Not just that he conquers sin on the cross. But he conquered death. And that makes him more powerful than Caesar. Now in turn what does that mean? Well, 
He's going to tell you again when he when he puts the other side of the frame on here. This is this is chapter one. Then we're going to go out here near the end of his speech, and here's the other side of the frame. Romans 15. For I say that Christ became a servant to the circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. For those Jews, he is the fulfillment of all the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, he has come. Just like he said he would. Just like the Old Testament continued to say that he was. According to Daniel, talking about a stone cut without hands that would roll forward. Well, this little, the, the, the idea was this little band of house churches would be cut without hands and roll f- until it filled the whole earth. Unless they chose not to, which we'll see with the apostasy checks that. So for the Jews, confirm the promises. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God, uh, give gratitude to God for his mercy, just as it is written in Isaiah. And again, all you Gentiles praise the Lord and let all people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who has who arises to rule the Gentiles, and upon him will the Gentiles hope. The revolution has begun. And he who will rule over the Gentiles will not do it by a sword, he will do it by love. And it's different than you think. Now, that is a major pushback against everything that that a, a former pagan Roman uh, church member would have believed power and a king comes with the sword and blood and this one was hung on a tree like a criminal and then rose above it he went, he went below everybody he didn't try to build himself up there are no, there are no arches or shrines to King Jesus but there is he's written the temple will be destroyed uh, about 15 years later after this. But, but he will live in their hearts. Well, that talk about a paradigm shift. They've got to take a group of Roman believing pagan, former pagan people and move them in the idea that uh, to, you've got to be the servant to the circumcised, that he who is King, Je- King Jesus is also the servant of all. Something King Benjamin clearly understood. To be king is to be servant. And that's how you will change people and change their hearts. Okay, so that has a couple of... So here, here's, here's the tension that that would cause, right? Um, so in Aquila and Priscilla end up finally... That when, it, when it's safe, when Claudius dies, they want to go back to Rome. They go by way of Ephesus. Then they go back and they help strengthen the churches in Rome. And they want Paul to come visit. So, so Aquila and Priscilla, and their house church in Rome, uh, and they're going to, but there's, now there's this tension between what they understand as far as the Roman Empire 
And here's this kingdom of God, and it's a political kingdom. It's meant to ultimately rule the world. It wasn't just a theological nice religion. This is to be a kingdom of God. We have a king. King David has returned. How do you solve that tension between saying, yeah, we do have a king, and it's not the emperor? That would create some problems. So Paul's going to address one of them. So this is a little reminder when we get to Romans 13. Paul's going to give you a little bit of a reminder on this. He's going to say, okay, wait a minute. Uh, In case you think that we're supposed to be some kind of uprising, we're not like the Sicarii, the daggermen that are running around Jerusalem stabbing people during during, uh, holidays, trying to foment a, a war with Rome. We're not them. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for the rulers do not create fear for good actions, but for evil ones. They're going to try and rule you with fear. Do you want to avoid fearing the one who's in authority? Do good, and you'll receive his approval because he's God's servant for your good. In other words, he's going to, he will punish you if you're going to get too far out of line. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only to avoid wrath, but also for your own conscience. So what does that mean? Because of this, you pay taxes. <laughs> you're not, you're, for the authorities of, are God's servants who are concerned with this very thing. They, they would like their taxes paid. And even these days, we say, okay, we may not like paying taxes sometimes, but we believe in being subject to rulers and kings and magistrates, and we're going to pay taxes. Um, and by the way, that's going to keep you guys out of trouble because they're going to be a little suspicious of somebody who's worshiping another king. If you're going to do good and you're going to uh, pay taxes, you're going to be in a great place. Pay to everyone what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Earnings to whom earnings are owed. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Love one another. Be good citizens. Do what you're supposed to do. Because if you don't, we're going to get run out of town. But also, this is what, this is how this kingdom works. The Lord is going to fight the battles, and one day they will be brought under subjection. The interesting thing is, as a side note, one day Christianity did finally conquer the Roman Empire. It happens after 300 uh, A.D. when Constantine makes the, the, the uh, makes Christianity the official religion. and We can debate about why he did it, but the result is that all of the Roman Empire becomes Christian. And so he really did conquer those nations. Okay, so this, so what we're going to be reminded then, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. Try to avoid debt. That could then bring you into subjection and into conflict with the, with the leaders. Okay, a uh, couple of things then, uh, and then, then we'll kind of wrap up. Hopefully you've been kind of wading through all this as we're kind of putting things on the table and trying to organize this a little bit. Okay, let's go back and just remind ourselves, DNC 58. Let no man break the laws of the land, for he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be until he reigns, whose right it is to reign and subdues all enemies under his feet. 
We are to be good law-abiding citizens. We're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. And let's not forget that. Okay? All right. Now, as we kind of, um, kind of wrap up this, we started with the idea that what Paul was about to run into and what he had to kind of re-educate and change the paradigm on was the nature of God. How does God work? How does God rule? What would a God do? How does a God capture the hearts and the people? How does God work? And I think that, and that is, like I say, that's the nature of this book, the book of Romans. How does God work? How is righteousness created? But I think that's the question that always kind of comes back to us as well. Again, how do we picture nature of God? Well, he does poke a little bit of fun. Um, at those that I think in some ways we would say, well, this is kind of the spiritual people. He's going to say in Romans 1, since the creation of the world, his unseen attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly understood in the things that have been created. So they're without excuse. It's going to sound a little bit like Alma talking to Zeezrom and going, hey, listen, all the universe, all of creation testifies to him. It's Abraham saying, look at how everything is organized and the, and the intelligence behind all of that. The creations bear witness. Even though they knew God, speaking uh, especially to the Jews, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their ignorant hearts were darkened. Wow. They, they knew they just would not know. Uh, Am- Amulek says, I knew, but I would not know. I didn't want to know. Okay. And he said, Paul says, you guys know. And even you Romans, you know. So, so you Romans, they claim to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image like a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. (laughs) Um, It's like the old story of Abraham going to his dad's shop and breaking all of his idols except the big one and and his dad saying when when he comes in in the morning go what happened to all my idols in my idol shop and Abraham says the big one did it (laughs) and he goes he can't do it it's just an idol it's just a stone and he goes exactly (laughs) it's um, so you're exchanging the glory and the majesty of everything that God has created to worship a marble statue of a bird or a four-footed animal or a reptile. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creation rather than the one who created it, who is praised forever. In the end, as he's kind of poking the bear a little bit here, poking the Roman eagle, as he did in Athens, where he's going to say, you, you, you appear religious, you have all of these things going on, but you've missed who who really created all of this. And then he's going to say, and you know better. 
that it's just a rock, it's just a stone. It's just a little statue of Artemis, but that is not the God behind all creation. It's an imperial shrine, but come on, it's just made out of marble. There's a God moving in the heavens who is more powerful. We worship a Christ who defeated death and rose from the grave. That's power. But this powerful God doesn't do it with the sword. He does it by becoming a servant of all and by loving you. I can't even begin to imagine, brothers and sisters, what it would take to shift the thinking of people so steeped in centuries of believing God to be one way and then have to begin to believe in another. I bear you my testimony that Paul, in his power, as he was inspired to write this magnificent book, was able to begin to approach those that had misunderstood the nature of God all of their lives. And that he began to craft this in such a way to begin to crack and lay the foundations of having them understand that a revolution had begun, but it was far different than what they expected. Next week, what we'll do is, is take a look at the inside of the Oreo. We've seen the framing. Now we will look at the heart. And again, chapter 7, 8, and 9 become the complete apex of everything that Paul preached. And it is the apex of who we are. And what the Lord expects of us and of the worship that we have for this great Creator. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, good.